Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. What a privilege we have <clears throat> to come and to assemble together and to give praise to God and to be strengthened by the fellowship of God's people, especially through music. And it's obvious to us that music, and particularly the singing of superior voices in the choir, um, is worship of God. And I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What's not so obvious to us is that the reading of God's word and the preaching of God's word is worship. It's hard for us because I think, for one thing, um, we're used to having lectures, and that seems to be about education. We're not quite sure why a religious lecture in a church constitutes worship when nobody's ever thinking that, you know, a class lecture on accounting is worship. But David just prayed and asked the Holy Spirit to be present and to apply the word of God to our hearts. And the fact is, none of us will ever believe in the work of Jesus for us. None of us will ever see our sin. None of us will know of the coming judgment, as we just read in Revelation 22. All these things, there's a conspiracy on Satan's part to keep them from us. And there are very few places that are more clearly shut down in the world that we live in than the first couple of chapters of Genesis. And so it's almost as if every time we take a step from word to word in Genesis, we have landmines exploding under our feet. Because the clash of worldviews and the clash of idolatries and the clash of good and evil and right and wrong and black and white, every single cataclysmic clash comes to a head right here where we're reading this morning. And so because it is worship to hear God speak to us through his word and to have his word preached to us, please, out of respect for God, stand as we read his word. This is Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. And this is God's word, and it is eternally true. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Now, because this is God's word, it's always rubbing us the wrong way. And much of the work of preaching is showing us how our hearts naturally are disposed to be contradicting and rejecting God's word. We're creatures, he's our creator, and since the fall, our natural inclination has been bondage to Satan and a rejection of God. And so it's my privilege to look inside my own heart and see the ways that I don't like what God says. And I reject it in my own heart, my own life. And because I see myself, then I'm able to talk to you about how you reject it. So don't ever get a me versus you idea in worship. I'm with you. When I preach, I try to preach to myself. So don't think I'm trying to set myself up on a pedestal and say, you stupid people, if you only thought the way I thought. No. What I'm actually saying is, we stupid people, if we only thought the way God speaks. And that's what every sermon is. Okay. Now, I want to set up this text by trying to tease out of you what you actually think about this text, all right? Now, how will I do that? Well... Uh, there's no end to this smorgasbord. I mean, the ways that these two verses pop our self-important bubbles are 
are endless. It just goes on and on. Now, let me, let me, just, let me, just, let me just pick one out of the air, all right? <clears throat> so you all know that I love to cut grass. Did it in seminary. And now I, I, I pretty much look for opportunities to cut grass. In seminary, I walked. Now I ride, and that probably is why I like cutting grass now. And so yesterday, I felt like cutting grass. And so I, I went over to Doug and Heather's, our, my son-in-law and daughter, to their backyard. They have this big, big field, right? And so I started cutting the field. And because all the other men in the community have decided that they're going to start one-upping each other by doing it on the dag- diagonal. I thought, all right, I gotta, I gotta do it on the diagonal, and that takes a lot of joy out of cutting the grass because once you know you're doing it for show, then you have to concentrate every second on where you're and where, you know. So I'm cutting the grass and thinking a lot about straight lines and keeping my eye on the horizon, blah, 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 blah. And all of a sudden, I come across this little part in the grass where there are feathers. And it takes a few seconds after I get beyond it to, to realize what I just saw in the grass. And then I think to myself, weird. They, were, they looked like eagle feathers. What would be the natural, uh, what do you say, the natural enemy or the natural predator? Thank you, predator. The natural predator of an eagle. Or a hawk. And then I think to myself, maybe a coyote caught the hawk eating a vole? I don't know. And then I keep thinking about it, you know, and after a while, the pattern erases all thought from your brain. And you're going. And then I got over about 10, 20 feet. I kept going. And all of a sudden, there were just a whole host of eagles that had died there. I mean, there were feathers everywhere. And I think to myself, there must have been more than one eagle. And then I think to myself, couldn't be eagles. And then I remember that my dear brother, D. Wayne Pinckney, just butchered a bunch of geese and chickens. Now, what does this have to do with Genesis 1, 26, and 27? Well, I like to observe the difference between East Side Bloomingtonians and West Side Bloomingtonians. I think people are endlessly fascinating. I like it that when I go to the woman that cuts my hair, sometimes she gives me Korean food that I get to take home. You know? And I like it that Dwayne is black and butchered geese and chicken in, 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 in a backyard? And I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, when did Dwayne ever think that it was proper to leave the entrails of death, ma'am, and destruction in suburbia? What was Dwayne thinking? Does he think we like to look out our back windows and see death, mayhem, and destruction? And I'm telling you, it was that thick, and it covered probably this whole, an area like this whole platform. There was just a carpet of death, mayhem, and destruction. And I'm driving through it, and it's getting on my tractor. And I don't appreciate that. I'm on my tractor having death, ma'am, and destruction, spitting it out. I'm breathing it in the air. What was Dwayne thinking? And then I think, what do the little children think? You know, I'm concerned about my grandchildren. You know? Do they have to get up in the morning and see death, ma'am, and destruction in their backyard? And what are they going to play? What if they run through it? Listen, people, it is of the essence of being white. Suburban white. In large custom homes, we don't do that. We may have friends that hunt. 
We may even have friends that take their grandchildren hunting, but we try to hide it. Now listen, you're sitting there and you're thinking, oh, please, Tim, don't embarrass us. But I'm telling you, this is what every white northerner thinks that was educated. Every white northerner denies that his meat comes from death. He does not want to see death when it's his father. He puts it in the hospital behind curtains, and he only shows up as often as he has to. And before his father dies, he puts him in a nursing home. And it's the exact same when it comes to our animals. We, we deny where they came from, and we certainly don't want to see it when we get up in the morning and look out our back window. So what's wrong with Dwayne? Listen, if we're going to be Christians together, we have to look and see what we don't like about each other. And generally, our preferences run in racial directions. Okay? So Jason, a little while ago, you know what Jason did? Jason took a gun and he drove around the east side of Bloomington. Now, if he'd done it on the west side... It would be a little more acceptable, but Jason drove his car around the east side with a gun and shined little critters and shot them. And the police caught him. Jason, tell him it's true. Well, all right, a pellet gun. Were the animals dead? Oh, yeah, I, never, I never knew that. Was this the first time you had done it? <laughs> so here you have an Asian driving around the east side of Bloomington, including in the parking lots of the public schools, at night shining the little critters trying to kill them. And previous times, had you actually killed some? Okay. All right. So the police comes, and the police tries to explain to him that undoubtedly he has no idea what he's doing and how many laws it violates. And Jason says, I'm sorry, officer, I actually did know how many laws I was violating. Now, we can laugh about shining. That's one ticket. We can laugh about within city limits. That's another one. We can laugh about without a license. That's a third And I could keep going. There were five violations by the time the DNR officer came to his house. All right? But you know something? That's not what offended us about what Jason did. You know what's offensive about what Jason did? It's offensive that he was shooting little critters that remind us of our pets. Do you understand that? Do you understand that? It's one thing to butcher a cow or a pig. They don't remind us of our pets, you know. You know, it doesn't even sound like my wife. But it's another thing entirely when it comes to rabbits, because they're cute. Do you understand this? And so how we relate to animals is much the result of our racial background and the part of the world we grow up in. And the more quote-unquote sophisticated the part of the world is that we grow up in, the more we hide death. Do you understand that? And the more we would never think of eating a dog or a cat because those are pets and those are almost people. As a matter of fact, as I said last week, if you look at Facebook, they are people. Are you with me, or have I lost you? Twenty years ago, I was reading the New York Times book review, and I read a review by a philosopher at Harvard who was reviewing a book written by a philosopher at University of Kentucky. And the University of Kentucky philosopher had written a book about how A good pet is superior to a mentally handicapped child. Okay, you all with me? 
And he was saying that you sh- if you have a choice between a pet who is able to be responsive to you, able to engage in a certain sort of social behavior, make you feel good, uh, you know, personhood. If the pet's able to do that, but a child is born who is incapable of any expression whatsoever, that you should off the child and keep the pet. And so I'm reading this Harvard philosopher and I'm reading him, reading him. You know, I'm, I'm once removed from the Kentucky philosopher. And here's what the Harvard philosopher said in this review. He said, you know, <laughs> he said, um, I don't know what it is about this man down there in Kentucky, but I, I'm just not comfortable. And that's exactly what he wrote. He said, I just feel a little uncomfortable about his argument. And then he said, but you know, I just can't figure out why I feel uncomfortable. But, you know, I, 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 it, it, because I really don't want anybody to call me a speciest. Now, what's a speciest? A speciest is somebody who believes that when God created man in his own image and likeness, that that forever created a gap of of incomprehensible proportions between every human being and any animal. And so this Harvard philosopher feels revulsed at the idea that he would choose a dog over a human being but he can't quite get it in his head why he has this reaction. And he doesn't want anybody to call him a speciest. He doesn't want anybody to accuse him of having a higher view of human beings than animals. And I sat there thinking to myself, here this man is. He's sitting on top of a $35 billion endowment. It's larger than one-third of the economies of the world, of nations. Just the endowment of Harvard. And it all came from Puritans. And he must be very important to be writing in the New York Times. And this man is publicly saying that he doesn't have the foggiest clue why he's uncomfortable with choosing a dog over a little child. Now, would you understand me if I said to you, that is the definition of ignorance? Mind you, I'm not saying that he can't hold that position. He obviously does hold that position. What I'm saying is what's appalling is that this man who has had centuries of Christian faith dumped on top of him, He's sitting in in the yard in Cambridge, Massachusetts. The wealth of the world belongs to him. The heritage of every piece of truth that's ever come out of Christendom. And he's publicly scratching his head. He can't even remember what he's forgotten. You know that Kant, in an essay, I don't remember what essay it is, but the philosopher Kant says that we don't allow butchers to sit on juries. And he says we don't allow butchers to sit on juries because their work has made them callous towards suffering and pain. And so they're not fit to make judgments. More recently, I was reading an article in the New Yorker about the condition of, um, of, uh, of veterinary medicine today. Okay, so it's an article about what, what's going on in animal doctoring. 
veterinary medicine. And they said that it has become almost impossible to find vets who will treat farm animals. Now, why is that? Well, the reason is that vet school now is filled with women that want to have relationships with animals. And so there's no shortage of veterinarians who want to treat pets. The problem is when they treat farm animals, they treat them as if they're pets. And what farmer wants that? Now, how long do you think I could keep going showing you how opposed we are to the word of God? Have I done enough? I could go on and on and on, just just on the subject of the fact that only in man, men and women, only in man, has God placed his image and likeness. I could go on forever talking about that. I could talk about the nature of living in India, where you have millions of people starving at the same time as you have cows wandering the streets, unhindered objects of worship. And what, we're, what we have beat into our heads is that we're never supposed to observe race. We're never supposed to make any generalizations. Stereotypes are all wrong. And so what does it do? It completely shuts down our, discriminate, our, discrimination, our ability to discriminate. We, we're incapable of critical thought. Because we can't think in categories. We can't think in generalizations. We can't think in stereotypes. We can't, we can't look at races. We can't look at class. We, we, we must, everything is so vanilla that we have been rendered fools. The reason that man didn't know how to oppose the Kentucky philosopher is that he was the result of political correctness. And so he just didn't allow himself to think certain thoughts. And the thought he wasn't allowed to think was that in man, God deposited his image and likeness. Right? And so he was left scratching his head. Now listen. What is your goal in life? Is your goal in life to be acceptable to your neighbors and relatives? Is your goal in life to get through life without offending anyone more than you have to. And if so, what happened to God that he offends us every time he opens his mouth? You know, imagine if we could do what Thomas Jefferson did with the Bible. You know how he would cut out everything that he didn't like, Thomas Jefferson. He, he had a Jeffersonian Bible. He just... You know, cut it out, cut it out, cut it out. You know, the way many men handle their wives. You know, they just spend a succession of years cutting out of her everything they don't like, right? Jefferson did that with the Bible. Now, no matter how thick Jefferson's Bible was when he got done cutting everything out, what do you think he left in that we would cut out? (laughs) The Bible would be... You know, instead of it being this, it would be that. There would be nothing. And I can't think of, I can't think of two verses that are more ground zero for what we would cut out today. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And right there, we'd cut it out because we don't believe that God made man. We believe that man evolved. We believe that he, he, you know, he, he's some microbial, sludgy kind of 
bacteria kind of, and I'm sure I'm getting my words wrong, Phoebe, but I'm trying my best, okay? You know, the New Yorker cartoon where you see these footprints coming up out of the ocean, and they start being the footprints that are just sort of a little, and then slowly they become a primate's footprints, and pretty soon they become a human being, and, and there you see a, bi, a biped or bipod walking away and off into the horizon, and that's the view of human life today. And I tell you, it's the view that you have. You do not testify to your faith that God created man. I tell you, because you're embarrassed of it. And so it says, let us make man. This is God speaking, and he says that he made man. He made man. Man did not evolve. You look at Tim Keller and all his, uh, all his, uh, you know, um, all the preachers that, Tim, that looked at Tim Keller, and what do they say? What they say is that man evolved from a tribe of hominids. And so let me reread the text, okay? Then God said, let us allow man to evolve out of a tribe of hominids. And this is a conservative Presbyterian. And you tell me you believe what God says? I say, no, you don't. You try to avoid it because it's embarrassing in in a post-scientific age. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And that's scandalous. First, it's scandalous that God made man. Second, it's scandalous that God made man unique. And that God uh, gave man priority. Because, of course, nobody's supposed to have priority. We're not supposed to have priority with the whales, with the porpoise, and certainly not with the salmon. And if you happen to be one of these unenlightened hoodlums who's still eating meat, you need to hide it. Don't leave the feathers on the grass. (laughs) Listen, D. Wayne knows that I love him. Right, D. Wayne? He's nodding his head. I paid him to nod his head, right? (laughs) Listen, D. Wayne knows I love him, and I will tell you the truth, that for a few minutes I was actually a little irritated that there was death going in my tractor and in my lungs and left on that grass. Okay? Let us make man. We reject that God made man. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. We reject that man has pride of position with animals. We try to make animals into men and we try to make men into animals. And I don't see how you can argue with me. And then comes something even more offensive. And let them, this is referring to man and woman made in God's image, and let them rule over the fish of the sea. Now, let me ask you, if you're a woman and your husband tells you what to do, are you happy? Okay, I I wish I knew what was just said in that row. (laughs) Your husband told you to say yes. All right, okay. Did that make you feel good when he told you to say yes? (laughs) And she says, yes, it made me feel better than if I was forced to admit no. (laughs) That's often the best we get at submission. We're just happy somebody can tell us what to do that's right, you know? Listen, the word is what? What was the word the text uses? What's the word? Come on. It's not a nice word. Americans spend most of our existence trying to deny that anybody rules us. In other countries, it's still possible to know that you are ruled. I was reading that uh, the, the premier or president or whatever he is of North Korea, 
they have two meetings a year that last one day of their rulers because they already have the agenda and the decisions have been made and they just spend two days voting according to what their ruler tells them. America will not be satisfied until every single issue before legislatures on the state and national level is decided by a push of a button on your computer. That's how much we hate being ruled. And what God says is that man, men and women, are to rule the animals. Not just the animals, but every part of the world. Now I ask you, you know that everybody hates fracking, right? Does everybody know everybody hates fracking? People don't even want us to rule the stones under the ground. You know that everybody hates coal, right? You know that everybody hates oil, right? Man is absolutely opposed, directly opposed to these two words of scripture. And the issue is not that man's destroying the environment. That's the, that's the justification they'll give you. And then they'll produce some studies that show you that there has, in fact, been a, a series of tremors in Iowa and Oklahoma that they think can be traced in North Dakota to an increase in fracking. And so then what's, what's wrong with oil shales? And, and what's wrong with natural gas? Have you watched as this highway is built? It's fascinating. Mary Lee and I, a couple weeks ago, got in my, my, my Prius, that is a salvage title, it was wrecked. And we drove four or five miles along the roadbed of the new interstate. You can just do it. Get hung up on some rocks every now and then, you know. Yeah, we did it on Sunday. Yeah, we didn't do it during the week. Yeah, that's right. That's, that's an important part of the... Yeah, yeah, we did it on Sunday. We got out and walked a couple of times. I encourage you all to do it. And you know, as you drive along that road, do you know what you see everywhere? You see these tiny little signs. And the signs say, Karst... Karst... What is it? What's the word? Feature, yeah. Karst feature. And people, I tell you, this is the height of the morality of America today. All these little signs. And what are they guarding? Well, they're guarding these little, like, dimples in the earth that indicate that water over a period of time has eaten away the limestone such that there's a depression in the ground. Every single one of those karst features is a feature. And they are parading their morality that they're going to keep every single one of them intact. Now, I ask you, what on earth? And you say, well, there he goes, you know, he has no appreciation for the environment. You know, he has no appreciation for uh, stewarding the world in such a way that there's something left for our grandchildren. You guys, listen. I was an environmentalist back when I was 15 years old. I was completely opposed to nuclear energy. I was completely, I read Barry Commoner. Any of you remember Barry Commoner? I mean, Barry Commoner, before any of you guys came along, was saying that there is a limited amount of fossil fuels and its consumption is growing at an exponential rate. And then before him, you had Paul Ehrlich and his Club of Rome people telling us that in a decade or so, we're going to have mass starvations and riots all over the world because we didn't have enough food to feed China and India. And then guess what? God placed his image in man. And when God placed his image in man, he made a natural resource of the world that is incomprehensible to anybody today. And man, bearing his image and likeness, came along and invented the rice, 
that was the Green Revolution. And all of a sudden, both India and China, something incomprehensible when I was your age, both India and China became self-sustaining food-wise. And did that change their attitude towards this world? Did that make them begin to believe in man alone being made in the image and likeness of God? Did it make them begin to believe in the creativity and the endless resourcefulness of the human brain? No. Now they've got karst features. And what's going to happen if we pave over one of them? And listen, I know you don't want me to talk about the world as if we're seeing the contradiction of God in the world. You want me to tell you that man has good inclinations. And isn't it sweet that there are men alive today who spend their world being guardians of God's good creation? And isn't that really the motivation behind all of this, that there are environmentalists and biologists and and Spia, and you know, all these different people who realize that, that the diversity of the world is, is, is part of our inherited patrimony, but they can't say patrimony anymore. I don't know what they'd say. Just an inheritance. And that Christians have been going around polluting the earth. And now we, we need pagans who will restore the earth because they worship Mother Earth. Listen, I guarantee you the best environmentalists have always been Christians. You go back and you read about the discovery of the species. You read about who the fellows of the Royal Geographical Society were when it first started. You read about who it was that discovered and discovered and discovered and discovered and discovered in every single discipline it was Christians. Now, am I saying that people in other parts of the world did not have education? did not have reason and logic? No, I'm not saying that. But I am saying, where do you think hospitals came from? Who do you think took little girls out of prostitution at the temples of India? I will not have the Christian faith trashed as if we're the ones that are perverting women, killing them in the womb. At some point, all of us have to be honest and say there are two worlds. One world is living in the patrimony of Christendom under God, the Father Almighty. And we're confessing biblical faith, which is that God made us different than the animals and that it's our job to guard and to protect them and to use them as we see fit. And if we decide that we're going to use up all the king salmon and keep you know, the silver salmon, it's in our prerogative. And if I step on a spider outside but not inside, or if I decide I'm going to step on spiders inside but not outside, it's in my prerogative. Now, you can argue with me that it would be better to step on spiders inside than outside, and you might be right. But that's a decision that's delegated to me because God made me the steward of his creation. It's intrinsic to what it is to be a human being that you are the steward of creation. God says it. God says, let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. In other words, God gave Jason the freedom to go after rabbits. Now, not the way he did it. <laughs> but I have to admit, I even kind of, you know, I mean, it's, isn't that typical male initiative? You know? Isn't that sweet? Do you know something? Calvin, when he's talking about why God created man on the sixth day, do you know what he says? Calvin says God created man on the sixth day because he was busy, like a husband, setting up house for a pregnant wife who's about to give birth. And I just go all woolsey. 
I just go soft in the spine and I begin to cry and my eyes want to shut and I just want to walk out of the room and forget I was here. Because when I think of the way of a man with a maid and how he provides, he sets up a house, he woos her. He puts food in the shelves. He makes sure the wind can't blow. He builds up a little money, makes sure the car is ready to take her to the hospital, contracts with the hospital and the doctor, makes sure there are diapers, the right size diapers. Mary Lee went in labor and she said, get in your car and drive to Kmart and buy some diapers. And there I was in love with my maid. There was nothing I'd rather do in the universe than go to Kmart and get my wife and our child diapers. Calvin says that's why God created man in the sixth day. Because first he had to prepare for his precious men and women. So everything was in order when man came along. Everything he needed. Everything that was beautiful. Okay, now one last thing. And you knew I had to get to this, right? Okay, one last thing. Every creeping thing that creeps on, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. <laughs> and this is like, this is like, this is like throwing underhanded a 16-inch softball to Derek Jeter in his last game. <laughs> you know, it's like, here it comes, Jeter. Whoop! In other words, why am I saying it's a 16-inch softball? Well, because I think even, even a one-year-old could go on for an hour about the ways we attack this. I mean, if God says it, we're against it. Have you heard the expression that, it, that, if, that, if, that, if, that if a man speaks in the woods and there's not a woman to hear him, is he still wrong? Come on, guys, laugh. If a man speaks in the woods and there's no woman to hear him, is he still wrong? Oh, you guys are pathetic. It's like, have you never been around your mother? Do you not have a wife? Oh, man. It's hard to preach to you right now because I think I dwell in a different world than you dwell in, right? Come on. Come on. <laughs> Thank you, dear brother. My goodness. If you guys can't laugh at that one, you're entirely too self-important. Or whooped. <laughs> okay, all right. And so what's my point in telling that joke? Well, my point is that God has no sooner opened his mouth than we say no. He says yes, we say no. He says right, we say left. He says up, we say down. He says two, we say 30,000. Now, what's the two? The two is male and female. What's the 30,000? It's the gender continuum. God says two. God says man, woman. And we say, oh, but I'm, I'm a woman in a man's body wishing that I were a woman. Are you a hermaphrodite? No! Well, then, no, you're not. Well, that's demeaning. I mean, you're, you're invalidating my experience. I say, yeah, that's what Scripture pretty much does every time we read it. It invalidates our experience. God is true, though all men are liars. God made man and woman. God did not make man and woman in body of man wishing she were a woman. God did not make woman and man trapped 
in a man who wished he was a woman's body. You understand this? The reason you no longer ever say sex until, unless you're talking about that is because gender is a continuum. It's a social construct. And so you always signal, you tip your hat to the new revolution, make a bow, ticket. The reason you always say gender is you're showing that you, you too are progressive, that you too are educated, that you too understand things are more difficult than this. That it's not, it's not hard bifurcation. Only ignorant people think that way. People realize that other people are women trapped in men's bodies wishing they were dogs. Now, why did I say that? Listen, if you've already killed the distinction between man and animal, and you've killed the distinction between man and woman, why can't we morph over to animals? And I guarantee you that's what's going to happen in the next 10 years. You're going to see an explosion of bestiality. And you say, oh, no, 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 no. And I say, oh, yes, 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 yes. And you say, well, that's just a needlessly negative view of this entire project. And I say to you, if you had told my father when he died that today every single law against homosexual marriage would be removed by the Supreme Court, he would have never believed you. Actually, my dad would. My father-in-law wouldn't have. And so here we go. If you want to understand how child-rearing has been done for the last 30 years in the church, child-rearing has been done in such a way that women will grow up playing with Tonka trucks and men will grow up playing with dolls. Every single thought of parents has been to make their children progressive enough that they can get into the right universities and schools. And the way you do that is you eviscerate any notion of hard bifurcation into two separate categories. And so the way you teach them, the way you train them, the things you give them to play with, everything about their lives is, is, is carefully taught in such a way as to remove from them manhood and womanhood. And so I raise my children, my daughters, and you can imagine having Mary Lee and me as their mother and father, you can imagine that these kids are mouthy. Right? Only one of them escaped that. And you can imagine they're articulate. You can imagine they're bright. You can imagine that they're strong-willed and stubborn. And do you think that I taught my daughters that it was more sinful for them to be that way than for their brothers to be that way? Because you know it's true. Being mouthy sits less well on woman than it does on man. I mean, come on. I'm just teaching you what femininity is. And so what we all did is we all tried to raise effeminate boys and butch girls. We were so proud of the fact that our daughters could whoop any boy their age out on the soccer field. And for that matter, with the SAT, too. And so every evangelical daughter is on steroids. And she's going to change the world. And if you want to meet these women, go up and just meet any woman that comes along at Wheaton College. Her mission in life is to change the world. She would not lower herself to admit she wants to be married and have children. Now, if that's the way the church is, what do you think the culture is like? The culture always apes the church. Everybody thinks it's the opposite. It's not the opposite. The preachers stopped preaching biblical sexuality, the people stopped living it, and the world went to the dogs. Now, I'm out of time, but I want to end with this. 
What did we get when we decided to turn our backs on man and woman as God created? What did they give us if we would just reject that? What, you know, what did we get? Now, I know books are being written about what we got. The books are telling us that finally woman is free. Finally, woman is self-determined. Finally, woman is autonomous. Finally, woman does not find her being in personhood validated by the mindless slavery and drudgery of motherhood. Listen, this is absolutely what you are absolutely always taught by our wicked culture. And so let's, let's open it up a little bit. Was it a good deal? You know, when you get done buying something, you should have some sense whether you got ripped off or whether you got a good deal, right? So was it a good deal, this bill of goods that Margaret Sanger sold us? Margaret Sanger said that if birth control was finally legalized, which it was done when I was 11 years old by the Supreme Court, when I was 11, all right, she said we wouldn't have rape anymore. Is rape gone? She said we wouldn't have child abuse anymore and incest. Incest gone? She said that abortions would decrease. Abortions decreased. So let's look at the issue of personhood and meaning. Let's look at contentment. Is there anybody here who is prepared to argue that woman today is more content than she was back at the end of the 19th century? Does the literature of female novelists indicate this? You know, Fifty Shades of Perversion. How about the fact that women are now required by their fathers and their mothers and their boyfriends to cut apart the little child in their womb? And that this is just what we expect where there's free love and fornication. The woman can't hold the man hostage by having a baby. He doesn't want a baby. He never had intercourse to have a baby. And so she needs to get over it and get down there and kill the baby. So how about those women? Are those women doing better? Do they feel validated having wounds? And how about all these women in equal marriages? where the man doesn't take responsibility for his wife and his children. Do you think those women are happy? So you've heard that there's a literature known as violence and victims literature. It's an intellectual discipline. And so they set about to study violence in relationships because, after all, this would be one indicator of well-being. And they were absolutely certain that they would find in marriages where the man and the woman had no authority and submission but just equality, non-distinction, just gender, that those would be the relationships that did not have physical violence. And over here would be the patriarchs where the man's the head of the home. And we'd find him dragging his wife by her hair into the bedroom just the way his prehistoric ancestors used to drag women into the cave. Of course, as Chesterton says, the one thing we actually know about prehistoric man is that he wasted his life drawing pictures of deer. <laughs> And it doesn't seem like the kind of guy that drags women into a cave by their hair. But then what do we know? I don't have a doctorate. <laughs> and so they studied violence 
in long-term relationships. And what they found was that what was positively correlated with violence was absence of roles and authority. That when there was no delineation of responsibility in the relationship of the two people, that they fought violently. (laughs) And these people were absolutely committed to proving the opposite. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? In other words, there was less violence in patriarchal relationships than there was in egalitarian relationships. All right, does that make it clear enough for you? But do you know who had the most violent relationships by their own testimony? Lesbians. Lesbians. More physically violent, more serious violence than anybody else. Now, then they ask them, well, compare your violence in your lesbian relationship to your prior violence in your heterosexual, because a lot of them had been married before, right? And the lesbians themselves reported that there was more and more serious violence in their relationships with the other lesbian than there had been in their prior heterosexual relationships. Now, come on. When will you trust God? When will you trust God? When will you open your Bible and be soft and say, God is true, though all men are liars? When will you have faith to go to your loved ones and tell them that they need to live out the manhood and womanhood that God gave us as a beautiful gift? When are you going to have faith for the gospel of Jesus Christ to our culture? When are you going to have faith? When are you going to begin to live with your wife and husband in such a way that it's the sweetest thing on the face of the earth? Remember that song, Neil Young? Any of you remember it? Oh, you know, he always kind of, oh, a man needs a maid. Remember that song? A man needs a maid. So I've gone 10 minutes after I said I was going to stop. And this really is the end. So when my daughter, Michael, wanted to get married, and I was trying to get her to get a degree and to finish up her scholarship and all this other crud, do you know what Michael did to me one day? This is my daughter, Michael. She came up to me and she said, Daddy, I'm just trying to do what you taught me to do. And then this morning, as I'm in the back getting ready to preach, I look up at the choir, and what a joyful, joyful thing. And there in the back row is my daughter, Hannah. And I tear up. Why do I tear up when Hannah's in the back row of the choir? Why? Because Hannah is feminine. And she's leading me in the praise of God. What does the world have to give us? There's nothing as beautiful as femininity. Men, are you with me? Are you with me? Are we patronizing our wives and our daughters when we say that? No. We're desperate for gentleness. We're absolutely desperate for civilization, for manners, for etiquette, for chivalry.
love you, sweetie. I love you. I love my wife and my daughters. I love every woman in this church who is willing to be a woman. Right? In the image of God, he created him. Male and female. He created them. So confess your sex. There's no more pungent confession of Christian faith today than to confess your sex, male and female. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you will take your word and that we will begin to live on it instead of all of the sirens that are just blowing helter-skelter around us. Help us not to be ashamed. Protect our women, Father. Help us as men to stand between them and the corruption of our culture that they might be sanctified. We pray in Jesus' name.